Welcome to Threshold Stories, crossing thresholds one story at a time. I'm your host, Jeff Gora. In this episode, we discuss fitness, overcoming adversity, and some faith. Our guest today is Jill Henson, owner of Core Studio Pilates. Jill is a breast cancer exercise specialist who has seen firsthand many battles with cancer in her family and friends and has somehow remained above the threshold throughout it all. She is the founder of the Core Compassion Project, which provides Pilates scholarships to breast cancer survivors. Jill operates on the premise that no one should have to fight these challenges alone. I think Jill's a cultural chameleon. She has this incredible ability to form connections across culture and overcome adversities in all form. These abilities are on full display in our chat, serve as key takeaways that I think we can all apply to our lives. She's going to open up about her loved ones and the key impact they've made on her life, overcoming some of life's biggest obstacles and her own insight on self-improvement. Her incredible mindset and desire to help those around her has us so excited to feature in this podcast. It's time to cross the threshold. Jill Henson. Jill Henson, welcome to the farm. Thank you for having me. Because we're probably going to hear a rooster or a cow at some point in the next half an hour. It's just the nature of things around here. So I was talking to my youngest son, and I thought about you. He decided he wanted to become a vegetarian. And he changed his mind. He said, I'm just going to have meat Mondays. I'm going to eat meat on Mondays and no other days of the week. And being the nerdy, geeky dad that I am, I went to uh, research and said, give me some information regarding recently published material on people who've migrated to vegetarian diets. Mm -hmm. And I ran into a publication done published just two weeks ago, done by the Japanese, 70,000 people, lots of published authors in here. Japan Public Health Center is the one who put it out, and this is an American version on PubMed. So it's credible. It's got a lot of research on it. Short of that, without going through the science, is in Japan, over a long period of time, mortality is higher for people who eat meat than people who don't eat meat, i.e., if you don't eat meat, you live longer. I'm not going to go through the why and the how because there's a lot of variables he doesn't mention here. But um, you've gone through some evolution in your diet, haven't you? I have. And um, I've never had a conversation with you about it, but I've heard you chatting with ladies about it too Mm -hmm. many times to count. Where does your evolution in your food stuff come from? Well, you know, as a kid, I uh, pretty much ate whatever I want. You know, we were on a southern diet. (laughs) <laughs> and um, I can't say it was the healthiest. And I can remember... Mac and cheese um, was like a vegetable. Oh, mac and cheese, McDonald's, soda. Um, yeah, everything. I cannot see you drinking a soda. You wouldn't, now, <laughs> Like ever. <laughs> well, you know, over time, I for five years, I was a vegetarian. Um, did not touch meat. For 10 years, I did not touch beef. But my body felt a little tired. And I know, I don't want to speak for everybody because there are a lot of vegetarians who are very successful um, with that uh, choice. Um, For me, I slowly just added a little bit of meat back into my diet for energy, and it helped me. Um, I don't, I I probably do more, eat more meat than I thought I ever would, Mm -hmm. Um, but I feel great, and I'm just trying to find that balance, you know. I'm just trying to get rid of the processed and really eat off the land. Mm. Well, you're going to eat off the land here if you stick around afterwards. Because our right. garden is full right now. So my youngest is training for the long-distance triathlon national championships. Mm-hmm. You know, the Ironman equivalency kind of stuff. And my conversation with him is, it's looking like that you're going to be just fine, but you got to go out of your way to make sure you get the protein you need. 
Right. And your body's got to get used to pulling in the energy you need. So he's kind of figuring out how he wants to do that. How awesome at his age, too, that he's trying to figure it out. And, you know, what works for me may not work for you. What works for you may not work for him. You know, I think there's a way to be healthy, but our bodies metabolize things differently, you know. And Mm -hmm. he may need more of something as um, an athlete who works out nonstop, you know, high intensity. He may need more of something than what my body needs. The reason I kind of brought this up right now, not only was my conversation with him, but the patterns in your life kind of match what we see going on in the book of Genesis. God starts us with four foods, right? Mm -hmm. Nuts and seeds, fruits, and what we now call the vegetables. And that was all we needed. And we tended the garden. That was the only job we had, tending the garden. Well, come next comes sin. We start putting meat into the equation. Our workloads change. We're no longer just tending gardens. We're fleeing at maximum speed from Tyrannosaurus Rex, right? Mm -hmm. And um, we had a different fuel because we were going through a different time in our, our life. And, of course, manna gets introduced, which we now call bread, at least what we think is called bread. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And it changes with us. It sounds like what you just described is you had a change in your life, and the diet changed right along with you. Yes, I would agree with that. So processed foods. What are some of the processed foods that make you go, ah! Well, you know, I feel like anything that you can buy in a box is probably <laughs> going to be questionable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what Linda says? She says anything made in a plant is probably not so good. Anything that comes from a plant is probably pretty good. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I love that. You just steal it. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> so accountant to Pilates instructor, can you just explain how you do that? Well, so I worked for the family business for 10 years. It was a, or it still is, um, a general um, contracting business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I pretty much, um, was assistant to my father-in-law and what, whether we were going to bid openings, bookkeeping, um, you know, working with our accountant, it just day to day, that's what I did. I learned so much from him. Um, and then my husband at the time also worked for my father-in-law, but he was Mm -hmm. in the field. So it was just my father-in-law and I in the office. Um, and you know, we had an assist, another assistant, so when the economy tanked, there wasn't really a lot for me to do. Um, I had three small children at home, and our business was okay, but there wasn't a lot of work at the time, so we were just trying to sustain. And at that time, there were a lot of construction companies that were you know, bidding on one job to pay for the last job, oh, no. and my father-in-law was just really smart and chose not to do that, which in in the end, um, I think is why we were able to sustain the tough mm-hmm. years. And um, so I began to do more Pilates, and I decided to get my Pilates mat certification and teach mm-hmm. at the Extreme Ice Center, where my daughter, you know, ice skated. And that was just to have a little extra spending money. So that's kind of how the journey began. It started, mm-hmm. and now you've got this thing, this event that's cataclysmic. Crazy, growing. right? So. I have to do this, and I didn't tell you anything about oh, this in the script. Tell me um, what you think of when that guy walked in and you met him. <laughs> well, I'd already heard about that guy. So, you know, your wife was my client first. Mm-hmm. Um, loved Linda. And I kept hearing about this guy who was, you know, like climbing mountains in other countries and, <laughs> you know, um, living life on the edge all the time. But he wasn't 
too sure about Pilates. He thought maybe it was, you know, more for females. Audience, that is incorrect. <laughs> I was very sure that it was not for me kind of thing. <laughs> so do you remember the context in which we met? Yes. Yes. You were getting ready for, was that when you were, was that when you were first getting ready for your first national national championship? championship? It was six years ago, Joan. Gosh, where Almost the to the go? day. Oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And we, that day right there, we tested you, your mm-hmm. fitness levels. Mm-hmm. And we were learning how to do that as well. That's right. Yeah, that's right. it was new to us. Yep. Um, so you know a lot of how the decorations I have around the hall, the, the name that I have, came from me no longer getting injured when I train. And that didn't happen until I started doing Pilates and doing more something out of the sagittal plane. Because right. I literally did nothing out of the sagittal plane. Oh, I remember. I mean, <laughs> nothing. I mean, that was all I had. Right. Um, so you get this formal thank you. If it wasn't for Pilates, a lot of this stuff probably wouldn't happen. And now a lot of the people whom I coach and work with, they hear that recommendation. Well, you're welcome. Things. And I'm so grateful for it, too. I mean, I think the same thing in my life. Like, I can't imagine my life without Pilates. And I'm just so grateful that it was introduced mm-hmm. to me years ago. So um, in that picture right there, that's basically your first full year in your studio. What's it like running a Pilates studio in year one? Um, a lot of tears, um, a lot of fears, like, am I going to be able to survive? You know, mm-hmm. you hear from everybody, the first year is going to be the toughest. And, you know, I basically sold my house um, to help fund <laughs> the studio Remember that. in a very small town and and downsized, and it was just a choice that I made, you know, and not knowing, but ignorance is bliss, and, um, you know, I, there was a lot of fear, but I never felt like I couldn't do it, mm-hmm. you know, and I look at where we are now, and how it's evolved, and it just kind of operates like a machine, and it's exciting, mm-hmm. and um, it just makes me a little bit relieved, honestly, <laughs> Mm-hmm. to be at that point but I see somebody right here who had a lot of passion for for helping people for bringing Pilates to the community but someone also who was a little bit scared a little bit afraid so you did a good job at Thank hiding you. the little bit afraid thing so when I um described you to um the people producing this I um used two words I used the phrase cultural chameleon Aww. And the concept behind that is is some people, you know, they use language because they can speak several languages and they can use that to transition between cultures. You're an English-speaking gal, and yet you transition between women of all types and all ages. I've seen it. Women in other countries, I've read about it. I've seen pictures of it, like the one right there. Where did you acquire that skill? Because it ain't genetic. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I just love people. You know, I think it, it comes from my love of, of serving God and a responsibility to love people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I had thought about, I guess I'd never before thought about how I'm actually pretty introverted. Um, I noticed. Yeah. People don't always know that about me um, because at the studio, I'm forced um, a little bit to get out of my comfort zone, but it's also my happy place. And it, it's also where I'm most comfortable with other people. And so it's, it's really interesting to see every person who comes in has a battle. 
Every person that I work with, depending on the day, has something going on in their lives. And it's not about trying to mold myself to be different people for them, but more or less, like, share, you know, what I feel is on my heart that day with them. Some people come in, and they just need to talk. Some people come in, they don't want to talk at all, they want to work out. Some people come in and need the emotional side. So for me, it's just, you know, loving people. Mm. What a great way. You get to love people for a living. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Happening. Most days. <laughs> <laughs> Depends who is walking in at what time. Do other people in your family have the skill? I would say so, yes. I mean, to me, it's not necessarily a skill. It's just, I mean, I, I do think that um, I'm maybe good. it's a I'm good with type. Maybe. I mean, I, I, I do feel like I'm good with people, but it comes mm-hmm. from a very genuine place. I want them to feel good about themselves. I want them mm-hmm. um, to feel loved. Um, I've learned the hard way that it sometimes comes at an expense. Like you have to guard your heart a little bit. So I've learned to do that some. Um, but you know, I don't, to me, it's just what we're called to do. If everybody would love on somebody, um, you know, a little bit who needs, um, a friend, Mm -hmm. um, the world would be much different. And I know that sounds so cliche, but I believe it with my whole heart and that's how I run my business. I would agree that from my first-hand experiences, that is true. So I need to shift gears to um, your threshold because this is all about people crossing over their thresholds. And um, there's no one sentence that can get it all out, but your heart, your life, Mm -hmm. your soul to a certain extent has been, you know, ravaged by the impact of cancer. Yes. And um, most people... When they have cancer hit them, they get into they go through phases and stages. Not only the recipient, but the ones they love, where they get stunned. And typically, people get stuck in this space of inaction. And you did not go to the space of inaction. You decided to do something. So, um, <laughs> can you um just hold our hand through your walk uh, with cancer in your life? How's it how it's progressed? Well, so. Um Really, until probably six years ago, um, the only person in my, the only two people in my life that had cancer was my grandfather who had esophageal, and he was always pretty, he was already pretty sick when we found out that he had cancer, and then my grandmother, as a child, um, had lymphoma, mm-hmm. and um, when I opened the studio, with one, within one year, I had two women come to me with breast cancer. At that point, you may not know this, but at that point, like, there was no one in my life who had cancer. When we started, you know, Core Compassion Project, which I'm sure we'll talk about, um, that wasn't after the fact. That was before everything happened. So I had two um, clients come to me for help um, with their range of motion and strength after they had had uh, breast cancer. And so that was so really have, my first experience, hands-on. So the surgery and then the reconstruction afterwards. Some had reconstruction. Yes, yes. Yep, there were two. And well, What did um, you see in them that made you say, I'm going to pour into these people in a way different than I'm pouring into everybody else? So one of them was my very first client. And um, for me, it was, like, I just felt like there was nothing else I could do. Um and 
So I decided to go through um, a program called the Pink Ribbon Program, which would teach me how to work with these ladies. But I just felt so drawn to help them. And, um, you know, besides Pilates, I didn't know what else I can do for them. You know, I can pray. But as a teacher, I wasn't Mm -hmm. sure, um, you know, how to be there for them. And um, it just really, really bothered me. And I just felt like I needed to do something. So that's that's where we took the next step without really even thinking. Right. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> so you started an organization and you fought for a few years to get the nonprofit status, right? Mm-hmm. What was that organization's creating? What was your mindset behind when you said, I'm going to start this thing called Core Compassion Project? Well, it's funny. I never will forget. I thought, you know, if these two clients of mine um, are going through all these medical bills and they're financially stable, how many women or men are going through breast cancer and because of medical bills not able to pay for something as great as Pilates that could change their physical life, Mm -hmm. Um, well, and mental as well, And so without even thinking, I called my accountant, and um, he met me for lunch in um, downtown Monroe. And I'll never forget, he's like, you have you really thought this through? I mean, do you really, (laughs) can you just help them? Can you, have you really, do you know what you're getting yourself into? And I said, no, but I don't care, genuinely. And truly, had I known, I probably never (laughs) would have started it all. So I think it's just like an act of God that I didn't know. You know, Mm -hmm. I just, I'm grateful that I didn't. So we, that's where we started the nonprofit. And you decided you wanted to have events as fundraisers. We did. As opposed to trying to sell gizmos or widgets or. Well, backing up a little bit, even before Core Compassion Project, there was a group of us who decided we were going to. Um, walk in the Avon Walk for breast cancer. And so we held our first event to raise money for that. There was no nonprofit at that time. Um, We felt like that was Mm -hmm. a way we could give back to the women in our studio who were fighting breast cancer. So we were going to walk. I I can't even remember. I feel like it was was close to 33 miles over a weekend. And um, we held Bunko for Boobies, Mm -hmm. which was our first fundraiser, to raise money for that event and um, we were able to fund it all through there and it was after that shortly after that that core compassion project was founded so that first round of uh, fundraising um, where did that where did that money end up going was it to the the women who were that you'd met or no was it to some the, no board? it went to um, our entry into the avon walk for breast cancer so okay. there it, it supported our whole team okay gotcha 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 mm-hmm. gotcha gotcha so at some point you made a switch and you said, what can I do to support the women here who are hurting, mm-hmm. who don't have the resources? Right. What made you say, let's do something just for, at least at first, these local ladies? Um, well, I guess my exposure at the Avon Walk um, showed me how many women battle breast cancer. And um, I just loved seeing the support. And it made me feel... Um, as if, as a studio owner and leader in our small community, that I could make a difference for women. And so that's where we decided to move forward. Mm. And um, how many of these were in that first iteration of moving forward? How many? People, in, how many friends had you gathered or peers had you gathered to do that? Um, 
you know, there were probably 15 to 20, honestly. And um, it all started, Bunko for Boobies was supposed to be in a friend of mine and also a client in her backyard. Hmm. And then there were so many women who wanted to do it. We called um, Morning Glory Farm, uh, Nan Von Cannon, Scott Von Cannon, who um, she taught yoga for me. And um, they own a wedding and event venue. We called and we said, hey, can we use your farm? We have a lot of people coming. And she's like, sure. I I love this. You know, her sister is a survivor of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So she had that connection. And um, she was very good to us and allowed us to have our first event at her farm. And it's grown from there. Mm -hmm. Yes. Fascinating. So you've got my wife completely rustled up into this trying to keep this thing is going and growing as much as you can. What's on the um, horizon for Core Compassion? Um, oh, my gosh, great things are coming. So we are moving into our eighth year. So um, December will uh, that complete eight years. seven. Yeah, oh, my gosh. And we've put over 60 women through our program. And while that may sound like a small amount, 60 women with breast cancer, that is over 600 hours of Pilates. And I am just incredibly proud of that. The challenge has been at the end of the 10 sessions, Mm -hmm. some of them can continue and some of them cannot, you know, and um, just watching my own family with cancer, I'm I'm realizing how much, how how expensive um, medical bills are. I don't care what kind of job you have when you're hit with those high dollar, you know, medical bills, it's, it's, it's a challenge. And Um, so the fact that, you know, at the end of those 10 sessions, a Mm -hmm. lot of, um, our recipients, you know, they start feeling better and then they can't continue. And so, um, this was not just a Jill Henson deal, but the support of our community and our amazing board of directors, we have, um, I've been able to write a manual, um, two manuals actually, the first is going to be an at-home training program with four major components. And I don't want to, you know, give all the surprises away yet, but there's four major components of what we have researched inside our studio for the past seven years in working with breast cancer. Um, and we have created an at-home program. So every person who comes through our scholarship program will go home with this manual and have something that they can continue once they complete the program. In addition to that, um, I wrote an affiliate manual. So now we're ready to go into other studios um, Mm -hmm. and train Mm -hmm. other teachers to work with women safely who have breast cancer. So we'll have some contact information up at the end for uh, people who want to reach out to you more. And there'll be a little click here. People want to go right to the page where they can see more about what's going on there. Because it's inevitable. Somebody's going to hear this and they're not going to care. But they're going to say, you know what, my so-and-so friend has breast cancer my family member has breast cancer do you remember like what percentage or how many women are associated with breast cancer um one in eight i mean we're all most of us are connected in some way to cancer there are many people who have connections to breast cancer but one in eight women will get breast cancer so it's kind of a my choke up at a moment um my dad passed away about two months ago and change and I had to process a lot of his medical paperwork for him because I'm the executor of the state. And I found my mother's death certificate. And I had both of their death certificates in my hand. And it had my father's cause of death on there. And then I looked at my mother's cause of death. And hers was bones cancer as a result of breast cancer. 
Really? Yeah. So she ended that. up. So I ended up losing my mom over this process as well, which is part of why I have no struggles whatsoever with seeing my wife pour her time and effort into trying to make this thing go as well. Right. So you have one story that I feel it's mission critical you tell, and I kind of know bits and pieces of it. I'd imagine most people on this earth know bits and pieces of it. But um, this guy impacted you to the point where Aww. you have thrown your passion to a, a new level, even though mm-hmm. he did not have breast cancer, and it's a he for mm-hmm. the most part. And I know you don't haven't historically done scholarships to men mm-hmm. who have breast cancer, but take us through the impact of that. Well, um, so my nephew, Levi, was diagnosed with um, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Um, I guess it was so how old was maybe he four years ago now. He was, he was either almost three or had just turned three. Um, Julie, I'm sorry if I'm butchering that, but, um, I cannot remember exactly, but he was way too young to be fighting cancer. I'll tell you that right now. And I remember all of a sudden, like he was crying I mean, he was, he's all boy. And so there's this little, little boy who is, can't hardly walk. His legs are hurting so bad. His stomach hurt. Um, so my, um, sister-in-law, um, so, um, Julie, his mom is my husband's sister and, um, she and her husband drew, uh, my brother-in-law took Levi to the doctor and to start with, they thought he was, um, anemic, like extremely anemic. Mm-hmm. And so they were going to put him on a plan for that. And then for, with further testing, um, I'll never forget the day before or the day of Julie called me and I said, there's no way it's like, like there's leukemia happens to other people, you know, that that's not our Levi. He's fine. That's not going to happen. Um, so I was reassuring her. He was, he did not have cancer. Cause she said, I'll never forget this. She said, Drew swears it has to be leukemia. And I just thought, where is this coming from? He's overreacting. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget they, them going to the doctor and she texted me and her exact words, words were, it's leukemia, period. Pray for my baby, period. And um, our family just was devastated. And we were not sure how bad it I mean, it's always bad. But, you know, was this something that he was going to survive? Um, what were the doctor's first prognosis? What were they telling you for expectations? Well, I don't want to speak for them. Um, but I do remember us being grateful that he had a treatable, um, okay. form of leukemia. There was hope. Day zero, we was always hope. had hope, always had hope. Oh my gosh. Yes. And, um, just never, ever stopped fighting. And, um, I remember being at the hospital with her that week and, um, Drew's sisters were at the hospital and his, his mom and, and my mother and father-in-law and nobody really knew what to do. Like what? I can remember saying things that just now seem so cold at the time, but I was just trying to, you know, say something to make her feel better. You know, there's nothing going to make you feel better when your baby has cancer. And um, so I remember we all put together a GoFundMe page, and she had a hard time with that in the beginning because she didn't want to accept money from anybody. But I said, this is the only way we know to help you. And we're talking about several years of big deductibles and, you know, just lots of doctor bills. And so the crazy thing was is 
I feel like, I can't remember the exact number, but we raised over 25000 in a matter of a few days for them. People from our community were so giving, and it just, it gave us so much hope. More than anything, it was just so nice for Julie and Drew to feel the support of the community. And then following that, um, you know, my daughter, Lucy, has a very close relationship with Levi. They've always just had a special bond, and um, she was middle school at the time of his first diagnosis, and um, she was just very upset. And so by the time (laughs) – there's Lucy. By the time she um, hit high school, she ran for the very first Charlotte, North Carolina um, Students of the Year campaign, and she and her team of two other girls raised – Thirty-three thousand dollars for the Leukemia Holy and Lymphoma cow. Society, mm-hmm. and um, I was incredibly That's proud unheard of, of her. that a kid would say, "This is what I'm going to do in my spare time." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was really, really proud of her. And when she signed up, there was no question we want to do it. But I was more questioning, can we? Can we raise the amount of money that we need to raise? And so, it's a competition between high school students mm-hmm. um, to see who can raise the most money. And um, her team was runner-up the Charlotte, North Carolina area. So I was really, really wow. proud of her for that. And, you know, it helped us to have the connection um, with Levi. And Levi has been Boy of the Year for the Leukemia Society. So we've um, been pretty involved with LLS as well. You know, Levi is going to have a very cool um, antithetical resume if yes. he looks backward at what has gone on in his life, you know, all the people who poured out into him. I call it an antithetical resume because it's normally showing off that which you have done. Mm-hmm. His is going to be showing off that which others have done for me. Oh, and he's a champion. I mean, he, he's he's a champion. Mm-hmm. So even though he's still, you know, pre-puberty kind of kid, does he ever do things to inspire other kids? Um, well, yes. He, um, th- their Jill's family. face is on fire in case anybody's noticing here. <laughs> Well, their family is still um, very involved with the Leukemia Society, and and, um, I don't know all the details, but I know that there's a lemonade stand that um, their neighborhood has put together, and he does that every year to try to, you know, give back, and and Uh he doesn't understand it all right now. I mean, I remember he was so little, we used to tell, or Julie used to tell him that, you know, the shots, the chemo, all of that was to get rid of the bad guys. And um, I remember him meeting. Um, that's not that inaccurate. That's pretty accurate. Well, that, that's how do you explain cancer to a kid, you mm-hmm. know, who, who's not even hit kindergarten yet? Mm-hmm. And I remember him seeing a, a police officer one day and him asking the police officer, are you getting the bad guys in me? And um, it just, I don't know, just made me cry. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I can't imagine. But he is doing so well now. I mean, he's just a normal little boy. He's in public school, and he's playing soccer, and, you know, he's doing all the things that kids so do. So this drive that you have, your daughter got some of it, didn't she? She did, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's my mini. My <laughs> the mini. good and the bad. No. <laughs> you know, um, it's not necessarily related, but I feel it's a story that should get out there a little bit. Um, the act for somebody like me getting on Team USA it touches your heart, it touches your soul, it's monumental, it becomes a source of inspiration for you and others. But I have such an easier path, I had such an easier path than she did to try to get to that level mm-hmm. because the sport that she picked was crazy. Can just go through a typical training week for Lucy, what she would do, just 
trip typical? Go pick two years ago, pick four years oh, ago. Gosh. Just start your one. So, start Monday and go to Sunday night. Okay. So my daughter is a competitive figure skater. And um, we, unlike some um, folks who also skate weekends, um, she skated five days a week. But she would skate in the morning before school. And then and what does she that would, mean before school? Um, that would mean rise and shine between 4 and 4.30 a.m. on the ice between 5 and 5.30 a.m. How old is she during these times um, you're just talking about Well, she started ice skating when she was four years old. Um, we did not start early mornings at that yeah, age. When did, how, when did she start um, the early mornings? I would, um, thinking back, she was about eight years old. Because I remember my husband saying, are you crazy? And I, I remember just thinking, well, I mean, she loves it. Did he really ask? Not, it wasn't a statement. He didn't say, you are crazy? Oh, he probably said, you okay. are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I said, well, I'm just going to try it. I can remember taking my boys with me. Ivan would be in pajamas, and we would go to the rink in the mornings before school. And um, we just, you know, we just were disciplined to get to bed early. And um, so so she would skate in the morning three days a week. It wasn't five days so a week. So how many hours in the mornings? Um, an hour and a half to two hours normally. So is she solo or is there a coach there at the time? Um, no, there's always coaches there. There's other skaters too. I mean, that's just what you do in the world of figure skating. You have early mornings. Okay. Fighting for that ice time, you know. Right, right. So she had the 5 a.m. till 7 a.m., 6.30 shift. Mm -hmm. Whatever it was. And then, then what was the, what was the transition like from there going through what the rest of America is doing, which is getting up and cleaning and then eating and going to school. How did, where did you do that? How did you do that? So my car was a wreck a for years because we lived in it. Do you still find French fries underneath the seats and stuff? No, that car is gone. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, my car right now is pretty clean. Um, so she, um, she would change in the car on the way to school. I'm, I'm not yeah. saying people should do that. Um, she wasn't driving, though. She was not driving, okay. and she did have her seatbelt on, I promise. But, um, you know, we did what we had to do before we left the parking lot. So what did she do for food? We packed, we packed okay. breakfast. Yeah, okay. we packed breakfast. And I knew, as a, I knew enough that as mm-hmm. a figure skater, she needed to be eating and to be eating healthy. And then in the afternoons, um, she would have... Um, she would come back in. So she would skate two afternoons a week, three mornings. But then there's also off-ice training. So the days that she's not on the ice, she was doing Pilates. Um, she mm-hmm. had a personal trainer. Um, and um, she had a, How old was she when she had a personal trainer? So Lucy's been working with Melissa um, for about since she was probably 10 years old. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's not currently working mm-hmm. with her at the moment, but Melissa has always, um, Melissa Reiner, who is a figure skating and off ice um, fitness coach, she has um, run the STARS program for U.S. figure skating. Mm-hmm. Um, she has trained Melissa, I'm sorry, trained Lucy off the ice for years, as, others, as well as other skaters. What I discovered from walking in the ice center was there's so many kids doing that even the best of the best sometimes don't get their chance to um, skate on the big stage. I heard one time from an Olympic skater that less than 2% make it all the way. So you're doing it for the love of the sport, mm-hmm. not for the medal. Right. I mean, obviously the medal would be great, but you're doing you're skating because you truly love it. I mean, let's face it, there's not exactly a lot of scholarship money for college in figure skating either. So it's just nope. really the love of the sport. But I will say this. Um, the life lessons that figure skating has taught my daughter mm-hmm. has been um, far beyond anything I could ever hope for her. 
So I'm really proud of that. And um, it was an investment, but it was well spent. So, you know, your husband and you, and even before that, the whole construction business, that's always been sort of hand-me-down. Granted, you have to work for it. It's mm-hmm. not a free hand-me-down. Do you see handing down any of this to Lucy? Um, the core compassion stuff? We'll see what Lucy wants to do. Like, she's talking about um, wanting to major in psychology right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's her life. I would never want to push her my direction. Sure. Um, Has she shown interest? She is always interested in um, in serving. She goes to Honduras with me. Um, she always helps us with girls' night out. I'm not sure that queer compassion will be her passion, sure. but we'll see. You know, she's young and mm-hmm. she's trying to figure out what drives her. She's um, done some work with the Red Cross. She's passionate about that, and she sure loves the Leukemia Society. So, how has your dealings with queer compassion changed your prayer life? Um. You know, I've always had a consistent prayer life. It's just who I am. And um, so I can't say it's changed my prayer life. Um, I pray more for people with cancer. Um, Well, there you go then. That's part of it. Yeah. And um, also, I just feel like I'm so much more grateful than I used to be for my health, you know. And um, I thank God for that every day. It's awesome. So, Jill, I want to... um Put you back on here in a couple of months, maybe a year closer to it. And I just want to geek out on Pilates because it played a role in my life. And there's so many people listening to this right now who hear the word because they've heard it from me as they've met me. And um, I just want to geek out in it. Maybe we'll have some equipment here and, and do some chats about it. But I want to do it from an endurance athlete perspective, from a fitness perspective, and not necessarily from a rehabilitative you know, women's only kind of sport, which is right. the label it's historically had. You up for that? I would love nothing more. All right. Well, let's do that. All Thanks. right. Thank you. It's been incredible having you on this podcast today, Jill. Because of your passion and lessons in overcoming adversity, we're all better off from the time we've spent with you. The stories from Jill on building her fitness business, battling medical obstacles, and her ability to never lose faith are now stories you, the listener, can apply to your own life. And for that, Jill, thank you. For anyone looking to talk to Jill about her story or her Pilates business, I encourage you to reach out to her or visit her at corestudiopilates.com or corecompassionproject.org. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me directly. You can find me on LinkedIn or on my Facebook page at Jeff Gora Team USA. Thanks for listening to this chapter of Threshold Stories, Crossing Thresholds, One Story at a Time. Be ready to cross more thresholds with me in two weeks.